So we're, we're talking about joining God on mission. That God has a mission, right? Amen? Amen. And he has, invited, he has invited you to join him in that mission and to be a part of what he's doing in the world. And so first session we talked about that we're sent. We have to recognize we are sent people. We're missionaries. And God has called us to, to be the lizard, to seek those that need him. Second session, we talked about that we need to discern where God's leading us. God's spirit is leading us. And that we're to be like the sailboat that puts up the sail and lets God blow us where he wants us to go. And that we're looking to follow where he's leading. This session, we're gonna talk about serving the world. Serving the world. And, and I want to begin by talking about uh, a 2004 movie called The Terminal. Anybody seen the movie called The Terminal? Okay, a couple people. Story of a, a guy named Victor Noworski. And I'm gonna get my PowerPoint. Got some pictures of the movie here. Um, Victor Noworski, who is from a fictional country, um, Krakosia. He's played by Tom Hanks. And he is coming to the United States of America. He flies into JFK Airport in New York uh, City. And when he gets there, he finds himself in this very uh, precarious situation because his home country is in the midst of this civil war that just, just broke out while he was in transit. And the rebel government that has now taken control of the country, the United States does not recognize. And so he doesn't have a valid... Uh, a valid visa to enter into the country because his country of organ origin, the United States does not recognize. And so he can't enter into the United States. He can't go back to his home country because it's in the midst of a civil war. And so they're not, no one's flying into that country right now. So he finds himself in limbo and he literally can't leave the terminal. He can't get on a plane go back home, doesn't have, doesn't have money to get another plane ticket somewhere else, and he can't enter into the United States. And so he is forced to stay into the terminal, which by the way, incidentally, this is based on a true story. There, there was a story of someone who actually went to Paris, France and was trapped inside the terminal and couldn't enter France and couldn't go back to where he came from and was just forced to live in the terminal for a period of time. And so Dvorsky lives in the terminal for nine months and he tries to make the best of his time there. He tries to get odd jobs to earn a little bit, little bit of a living. He meets some of the workers, actually starts uh, falling in love with a flight attendant who comes in from time to time. And he just tries to make it work living in this airport terminal. Now, I can't think of a worse situation than to try to live in an airport terminal. Can you? I, there have been a couple of times where I have spent the night in an airport terminal. One time was when I was in college and I was uh, a part of the study abroad program that Harding had in Athens, Greece. And after the, that program ended, we were allowed two weeks to travel around Europe. And so I'm thinking like a college student, I think I know how to save a little extra money is one of those nights. I'm not going to spend the night in a hotel. I'll just spend it in the airport and I'll save money that way. And I'll be on time for my flight because I'll already be there. And uh, that was a miserable night. That they don't turn off the lights in the airport. They just stay on and they keep telling that PSA announcement over and over again in multiple languages. And it's hard to sleep with that. The second time I had to spend the night at the airport was just a couple years ago. Uh, and Jake, you'll appreciate this. I was speaking at Heritage Christian University and I was flying back 
to DFW and I had, I was flying United. So I had to fly through Houston and my flight was delayed coming out of Huntsville. And by the time I got to Houston, I missed my connecting flight. And I, and I figured this out when I was in Huntsville. And so I said, Hey, you know, what's going to happen when I get to Houston? I say, Oh, no problem. They will put you up in hotel and everything will be fine. So I get to Houston, you know where this is going. I get to Houston and this is about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. There's no more flights going out. I mean, this is it. So I get to Houston, I go up to the United desk. I say, okay, I, you know, flight was delayed, missed my connecting flight. Uh, so what, what happens now? Well, normally we would put you up in a hotel, but all the hotels are booked. I said, well, hang on a second. So what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, there's this hotel in the airport. You can go over there and you can hang out in the lobby, but they're gonna kick you out at midnight. I said, well, then what am I supposed to do after that? They said, well, just find a chair and cozy up and do your best. I said, listen, this is not my problem. This is United Airlines problem and y'all need to do something to fix it. They didn't really agree with me on that, but we spent the night at the airport. There's not a worse place to spend the night or try to live than an airport terminal. Have you ever heard of anyone who said they were going on their vacation? Where are you going? We're going to the airport terminal. No. We go to the airport to connect us with the destination we're going. An airport is not a destination. It is a connector to the destination we're going. And when we get those things mixed up, when we get those things mixed up and we think that the airport is the destination and we try to live in an airport, it doesn't work well because that's not what it's intended to be. It's to intend to connect us to a destination. And I begin with that story because I think that is a good metaphor for what we're going to be talking about in this session because I think it's the same way for the church. The church is not meant to be the destination of God's blessings. The church is meant to connect the blessings of God to the rest of the world. Let me explain that to you for a little bit. Our God is a blessing God, amen? When God created the world in Genesis chapter one and he created human beings, does anyone know, and John, you can't answer, does anyone know what God did first after he created Mankind. Do what? I'm sorry, say it again. He created the man. And then what was the next thing he did? He said it was good. That's right. But what was the first action that God did after he created mankind? Anyone know? Do what? That he said that, but he did something, well, in Genesis 1, it talks about male and female together there. Um, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. Let me, let me show you what he does. Look at verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then what was the next thing he did? Verse 28. He blessed them. He blessed them. Now I want you to think about that for a second. What does that tell us about our God? That the very, very first thing he does after he makes human beings is he blesses them. 
it should tell you something about God. God is a good God, folks. He's a blessing God. He loves to bless his people. And that's what he does continually. But when he blesses his people, he does it with an eye for us to share those blessings with the rest of the world. And a great example of that is found in Genesis 12. Flip over to Genesis chapter 12. And I'm gonna read the text here from Genesis 12. So God comes to Abram and he makes a, a promise. He makes a covenant with Abraham. It says in verse one, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The word blessing is used all, uh, all in these first three verses. It's just concentrated here. And God is saying to Abraham, I'm gonna do three things for you. Number one, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Number two, I'm going to make your name great so people can, will know of you. And then number three, he says, I'm gonna give you a special relationship where when someone blesses you, I'm gonna bless. When someone curses you, I'm going to curse you, curse them. And so I'm gonna bless you in a very special way. Now the question that I want us to think about though is why does God do this? Why does God choose Abraham to pour out his blessings upon him? You might say, well, it must have been that Abraham was a really, really good person. Or maybe Abraham just really had things together. Or maybe Abraham really knew the truth about who God was and nobody else did. And so that's why God selected Abraham to pour out his blessings upon him. But I would argue that really God makes the decision to bless Abraham. It really has nothing to do with Abraham at all. That God makes the decision to bless Abraham so that Abraham would pass on those blessings with the rest of the world. Notice what he says again in verse two. He says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And in the Hebrew language, that is an imperative right there where he's saying, this is what you're to do. This is a command that you're to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your great nation, make your name great. But here's what you're supposed to do, Abraham. You're to be a blessing. And here's the goal of all this, God says, at the end of verse three, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The goal, Abraham, God says, is not so that you can have all these blessings to yourself. The goal is that through you and through the people that I'm gonna create within you, that all nations of the earth will be blessed. All tribes of people will be blessed. You are to be an instrument. You are to be a connector of God's blessings to the rest of the world. See, this, see the situation with the airport? Abraham is not to be the destination simply of God's blessings. He's to be the connector to the rest of the world. I think it's the same way with the church. God blessed Abraham so that through him the earth will be blessed. I think it's the same way with the church. It's the same because we are God's people. We are the descendants of Abraham. Y'all ever sing that song, Father Abraham? How does it go? We're not gonna sing it right now. But you're, you're one of his child and so am I or there's that part in that song. 
we're the heirs of Abraham. And so just like God blessed Abraham so that through him the earth will be blessed, I think it's the same way with the church. And think about all of the blessings that we have in the church. I made a little list here. And the blessings that God has given us. He created us, created the world around us for us to enjoy. He gives us life, gives us breath, gives us meaning every single day. He has blessed us with material prosperity, folks. I hope you understand that. We are in one of the richest nations of the world. You know, I mentioned earlier about being in Honduras. Most people in Honduras live on $2 a day. I mean, that's not even enough to buy a hamburger, and that's what most people live on per day in Honduras. We are blessed so richly with places to live, houses, cars, clothes to wear, plenty of food, plenty of abundance. We have salvation through Jesus. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a community just like this that we can live within and that can support and encourage us. And the question is why? Why has God given us all of these blessings? Has he poured out these blessings upon us because, well, because we're just good people and, and, and God likes us? Is that why he's done it? Has he poured out these blessings upon us because we know the truth and we have it right and other people don't. And so that's why we get all these blessings. Has he given us these blessings because, because we're special in some way? I would argue that God has given us these blessings and it really doesn't have anything to do with us. He's given us these blessings out of grace, right? And he's given them to us so that through us, the blessings of God would go to the rest of the world. We're not just simply to be a destination of God's blessings like, like that terminal movie. We are to be instead a connector of the blessings of God to the rest of the world. We're to be the instrument that God uses, the vessel that God uses to bring blessings to the rest of the world. You know, Israel really struggled with understanding that in fact, if you read in the prophets, um, they, they struggled with understanding that God was blessing them for the purpose of that, those blessings going to the rest of the world. They thought God was blessing them because, well, they're just special. And so God's given us a temple and God's given us a king and he's given us land and he's given us all these things because God just really likes Israel. And, and so we just need to hold on to these blessings and we need to keep them all to ourselves. And the prophets like Amos would come along and say, hang on a second, you got this all mixed up. You think God has this special thing for you. He does have a special thing for you, but it's for you to take the message to the rest of the nations. That your election, which just means your choice, is not simply for privilege, it's for respons responsibility. Maybe another way of putting that is to whom much is given, much is required. And so the prophets were telling Israel, much has been given to you and much is required of you. You're not just supposed to sit back and say, wow, thank you God for all the wonderful blessings. You're to be an instrument through which those blessings go to others. I was reading, my, doing some devotional reading this morning and I was struck, it just happened, the next psalm that I was gonna be reading in my, in my study was Psalm 67. And let me just read Psalm 67 because it has this idea in it. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us. May his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. At the end it says, God will bless us 
and all the ends of the earth will fear him. The psalmist is saying, God, please pour out your blessings on us. Give us more blessings, but not simply so that we can sit back and say, wow, thanks, God. This feels really nice. This feels really good. All these wonderful blessings. No, bless us so that we can share those blessings with the rest of the world and so the world can know of you. That the church is to be a connector of God's blessings to the world. Well, how do we do that? How do we become this connector of God's blessings to the rest of the world? I think Jesus teaches us a little bit about that in Mark 8. I want you to flip over to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to look at this together. Mark chapter 8. You've probably heard this passage taught many times, but I want you to try to hear it afresh with me, okay? Mark chapter 8. I'm going to be, begin reading in verse 34 and 35. Then he called to the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Now, we've heard these verses over and over again, probably, if you've been in the church for a long time. But I want you to think about what Jesus has just said, because I believe that what Jesus says here is some of the most countercultural words in all of Scripture. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. Have you, has anyone ever told you to do that other than Jesus? I mean, we, we say, protect yourself, and we say, watch yourself, and we say, uh, hold on to yourself, or we, we say a lot of things like that. Be good to yourself, be yourself, be true to yourself, but nobody, no, nobody drops their kid off at school and says, hey, remember today, deny yourself. Nobody does that. No, no, no parent, as they're raising their kids, say, hey, remember, you know, deny yourself today. We don't do that because we live in a culture that says, take care of yourself and protect yourself. And yet Jesus says different. Then he says, take up your cross and follow me. Now we kind of glorify that a little bit because we like crosses because we know what happened there. But in the first century, the image of a cross, I mean, that was an instrument of torture. That was an instrument of violence. Nobody wanted to be around a cross. It would be similar today if someone said, Hey, if you want to follow me, just go ahead and sit in that electric chair or go ahead and stand behind the firing squad or go ahead and put that lethal injection in. Just go ahead and do that. If you're going to follow me, go ahead and do that. What is Jesus saying? And then third, he says, if you want to, if you want to really find your life, you need to lose it because if you try to save your life, you're actually going to lose it. That is so countercultural because we live in a society that constantly is telling us ways on how to save our lives. You want to have life? Here's, here's how to make yourself a life. You need to study hard. You need to go to school. You need to do well. You need to work hard. That's how you save your life. Has anyone ever given you advice on how to lose it? How to lose everything? Jesus says, if you want to really save your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to lose your life. What is Jesus saying? Do you see how countercultural these words are? And I think what he's trying to say is he's saying discipleship means that you give up self and God becomes number one. That you deny yourself. You die to yourself. 
You lose yourself for God to be number one. The context of this text is John chapter eight, where Jesus has taken his disciples aside in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And they give the trendy answers. Well, some say a prophet, some say John the Baptist. Jesus says, no, who do you, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter steps forward, and for the first time, Peter says something actually pretty good. And he says, well, we believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ. Ding, 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 they get the right answer. They get the right answer. And, and Jesus is happy that they've discerned that Jesus is the Messiah. But then he understands he's got he's to change his ministry. He's got to start teaching his disciples what it means to be the Messiah and what it means to follow the Messiah. Because in their mind, they think that to be the Messiah is to have power, it's to have authority, it's to have a, a legacy, it's to have people want to be next to you and near you all the time. And Jesus has to explain that's not what it means to be the Messiah. And so notice what he does in verse 31. It says, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He immediately begins to teach them to be the Messiah means that you die. That's what the Messiah means to be the Messiah. It's not about glory. It's not about honor. It's not about authority. It's not about power. It's not about legacy. It's about dying. That's what Messiah means. And Peter, he doesn't like that. He's like, no way, that can't be what it means. And he starts to rebuke Jesus and Jesus turns to him in verse 33 and he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter had in his mind that what it meant to follow Jesus was to receive and to get power and authority and all of these wonderful, wonderful blessings. And Jesus is saying, no, to be the Messiah and to follow the Messiah means that you give up. You give up your life. You give up yourself. You give up those blessings for the rest of the world, for the sake of the gospel. You see what he's saying? And this is where this passage becomes so difficult because we have been taught over and over again in our world that life is about you. We've been conditioned by our culture, we've been counseled by our psychologists, we have been challenged by our families, we have been encouraged by our friends to focus on you. I just need to take some time to focus on me. Anyone ever thought that? We've been taught to think that way and we become wrapped up in ourselves and it's all about our plans and our ideas and our ambitions and our dreams and the things that we want to see accomplished and the things that we want to do. And I just realized I haven't been flipping forward my PowerPoint. <laughs> I got wrapped up in what I was talking about. And then we spiritualize it and we, and we, and we do that in the church and we think that what I want is probably very similar to what God wants. And so let's just focus on what I want and let's just receive and try to get more and more blessings from God. And if you put a church together of people who are all just focused on themselves and trying to receive more and more blessings from themselves, two things happen. Number one, the first thing that happens is you start neglecting the people right outside your building who need the, who need the Lord Jesus. And so let me give you an example of that. Back in the 70s, 
Southside in Fort Worth was right across the street from a place called the Edna Gladney House, which in our county was the number one uh, social service agency to help in adopting children. And young women who were single and who were pregnant would go to the Edna Gladney house and they would help them in their pregnancy and they would find a family for their child. And, they were, and that was happening over and over again. And that was right across the street from our church building. Talk about a lot of people and a lot of children who need the Lord Jesus. They were coming right across the street to our, from our church building. But you know what? Our church didn't have hardly any involvement with them. For, there was a few that went over there, but pretty much had no involvement. You want to know why? Because we were focused on ourselves. We were focused on trying to receive more and more blessings. And we had forgotten we're to bring the blessings of God to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is right across the street. There's a lot of people that really need Jesus. The second thing that happens when we have a church that's just all focused on ourselves is that conflicts start to arise. And you have someone at church who says, well, I think we need to do a church this way because I'm younger and I'm the future of the church. And then you have someone else say, well, I think we need to do a church this way because I'm older and I'm the, I'm the, I represent the, the roots of the church. And then someone else said, well, we need to do a church this way because, because I'm smarter and I just know what's best. And someone else said, no, I I, we need to do a church this way because if we don't do church this way, I'm leaving. And all of that is based on a perspective where it's all about me and about getting what I want and receiving more and more blessing for me. And Jesus says, that's not what it means to follow me. What it means to follow me is to give up self. To give up self. To give up the blessings for the sake of the gospel. To share with others. And so the question that I think we need to wrestle with is this question right here. Why does the church exist? Does it exist simply to receive benefits from God, to focus on itself and receiving more and more stuff? Is this what it means to follow Jesus, just to, to receive more Christian blessing? Or does it exist to be an instrument that connects God's blessings to others? that vessel? Is, it, is the church an airport that connects the blessings of God to the rest of the world? Is that what the church is? And I, think if we, and I think we would agree, it's supposed to be that instrument. We're supposed to serve the world. We're supposed to share the blessings of God with the rest of the world. And if that is the case, I think it's going to cause us to do some things a little bit differently. And let me give you a few examples. I don't know if you can read this, <clears throat> but I'll read it to you. It's going to move us from just building buildings for our activities to instead building buildings to bless others. You know, we spend a lot of money, and, I, and I'm talking to myself because we do this at Southside. We spend a lot of money on our buildings and on our vehicles, our vans, our buses. And who primarily does that bless? It blesses us. It blesses us. And we think, well, you know, that's what we need to do because it blesses us. But if, are we simply just to receive blessings or are we instead to be an instrument where those blessings can bless the world? And so at Southside, one thing we've tried to do is we've tried to open up our building because we realize that's a, that's a 
very good resource in an urban environment. We try to open up our building so that people in our community can use our facility for various meetings or various programs or various things because we want to share that blessing with the rest of the world. And it's been amazing to see how the community appreciates that so, so much. And it's brought so much goodwill to the church because we're trying to share what God has given us with the rest of the world. Or, or what do we emphasize? Do we emphasize internal ministries or emphasize external ministries? And a good test on this is to look at our bulletins because most of the time when we have our bulletin or our worship order, what, what's in there? It's most of the time ministries that bless us. Ministries that, that help us. But what are we supposed to be as a church? Simply a place to receive blessings for ourselves or to share them with the rest of the world. And so in order to do that, we've got to start emphasizing ministries that bless others beyond our walls. You know, at our, at our church in Fort Worth, we tried to make an intentional effort that in our bulletin, we want to have something every week about some way in which we're trying to bless people outside of our building, outside of our church because we, we wanna emphasize that. Number three, instead of focusing on, on success being having people here and attendance, instead emphasizing success based on blessing others. Because we want people here, we want good attendance, but a lot of times that's because we want people here doing our things. But instead, let's emphasize being a blessing to others. One way we did this in Fort Worth, and, this, and you might not wanna do this, and it causes a little flack when we did it, but we stopped reporting in our bulletin how many attended Bible class and worship. Because, you know, that's kind of an internal thing. We want to start reporting what people are doing outside to bless our neighborhood and community. And so instead of having that little corner on the bulletin where it said, here are the statistics, we would put in that corner, well, this this Bible class went and served neighborhood elementary school. And, and this group went and did this service project. And this group shared the message of Jesus with this part of the city. And we would just put those little snippets of service in our bulletin to say, this is what we're proud of. This is what we're excited about because we're sharing the blessings of God with the rest of the world. And then number four, it moves us from, from looking at our ministers not as pastors, but instead more as evangelists. Now, we don't call our minister pastor, right? Because he's the preacher. Our pastors are our elders, but sometimes we can make the preacher into a pastor. And we say, you're here for us, to bless us. But again, isn't that that same perspective of saying it's all about us and you're here to bless us? I would argue that we need to release our ministers to be able to be evangelists who lead us into the world to be an instrument of blessing to the rest of the world. Does that make sense? And what's interesting, when I did my uh, Churches of Work uh, study that I referenced in the earlier part, another thing that I noticed as I visited those top four churches is that the preachers had a perspective of being what I called a missional catalyst. They weren't seen by the church as the pastor who took care of everybody in the church. Instead, the preacher was looked at as someone who was leading the church, who was pushing the church into the world to serve the world and to share the blessings of God with the world and being a leader towards mission. In fact, two of the churches that I visited, the preachers used the title evangelist because they wanted people to know that's who I am. I'm not, if you want a shepherd, the elders will be your shepherds, but I'm the evangelist. And I think, again, that's moving us towards sharing the blessings of God 
to the rest of the world. Maybe another question to ask ourselves um, around, around this topic is this question. If the church left the community, would the community care? If, if we're a church that all we're concerned about is piling up more blessings upon ourselves, then if we left, nobody's gonna care at all. But if we're a church that wants to be an instrument to take the blessings of God to the rest of the world, if we're dying to ourselves and trying to share those blessings with the rest of the world, the world or the neighborhood or the community is gonna care if we leave because they're being blessed by us. So let me give you a negative example of that. A few years ago, we were driving through Arkansas and it, we were going on a little trip and it was about Wednesday night. And so we were gonna stop for Bible study and we stopped at this small town and I knew there was a Church of Christ located in this town. And so we went to, we didn't know where it was and I didn't have an iPhone at the time. So we went to the gas station and asked, hey, do you know where the, the Church of Christ is located? And the lady said, Church of Christ? No, no, I have no idea. I didn't even know there was a Church of Christ. Hey, you know, Tommy, is there a Church of Christ in this town? No, no, I never heard, I, I don't know. And so they pull out the phone book and, and look it up because they didn't have iPhones either. They pull up a phone book and they start looking up church, Christ, church, Christ, church, Christ. Oh, there's the address. Oh, that's right down the street. And literally less than a half a mile, a few hundred yards away, there it was. Now, I don't want to judge that church or what was going on with that church, but I think we could be fair to say that that neighborhood had no connection with that church. They weren't being blessed by that church. And if that church had left, nobody would have cared. It made me want to go back to Fort Worth and go to all the gas stations around our church. Like, okay, you know where Southside Church of Christ is, okay? And we just get on the same page here. Reggie McNeil in his book, Missional Renaissance, he says, churches don't need evangelism strategies. Churches need blessing strategies. Churches need to find ways to bless their community over and over and over again. Because if you bless someone enough, if you pass on the blessings of God to someone else enough, eventually they're gonna say, okay, tell me what you believe because you're loving me so good and I need to find, find this out. And I've seen this happen over and over again at our church at Southside. And I'm gonna tell some of those stories tomorrow morning and I hope you'll be back for that. But I've seen that over and over again where people come and they, they are blessed physically with food or clothes or something like that, or their children are loved on, or they're helped out in some way. And at some point they say, you know what? What do y'all believe? What do you teach? I need to learn about this because you have been so good to us. And when we become a church that shares the blessings of God, the world notices that and is drawn to that. But like I said, this is not easy to do because you have to die to do this. You have to give up self. And frankly, sometimes we just don't wanna do that. We wanna hold on to self and that's what matters. And we wanna take care of ourselves and we want people to take care of us and we want more of the blessings for ourselves. And we've gotta to die to that. My sister and brother-in-law for many years have been missionaries in India. They're not there now. They're actually in Nepal now, but they've been in India for a number of years. And my brother-in-law tells a story about this guy that became a Christian named Wahid, and I really love this story. Wahid came from a Muslim background. And um, by the way, how much time I got? I need to probably quit after this. 
Okay. 10 minutes? Okay, great. I can keep going. <laughs> well, he came from a Muslim background, Muslim family, but he was disgruntled with the Muslim religion, and so he, and he had moved into Mumbai, India, where my brother-in-law and sister lived. And he met some Christians, and he started studying the Bible with these Christians, and he came to the conclusion that he wanted to become a Christian. And he met with my brother-in-law, and he said, I'm ready to be baptized. And my brother-in-law said, well, Wahid, I'm very happy that you want to do this, but you come from a Muslim family, and it's very possible that when they find out that you become a Christian, that, that they're going to want to maybe persecute you or maybe, maybe treat you very badly, maybe even kill you. And so I think before you make this decision to be baptized, you need to think about it. And you don't need to make this decision to do this until you are ready to die because that's what it might require. And so Wahid said, okay, I'll think about it. And so he took a few weeks, he thought about it, and he came back to my brother-in-law and he said, I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready to die. And so he baptized him into Christ. And thankfully, the Lord has protected him. And Wahid is still serving the Lord in Mumbai. He's your brother in Jesus. And, and John, maybe, maybe when we take the good confession, we need to add another question. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die to self? Are you ready to give it up for Jesus? Because that's what he says in Mark 8. That's, that's what it means. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you really want to join God on mission, what it's really all about, folks, it's about dying to self. It's about saying, I'm going to give up some of the blessings that God has given me. I'm going to give them up a little bit so I can share them with someone who doesn't know Jesus. And yes, it might make me a little uncomfortable. And yes, it might push me out of my comfort zone. And yes, I might have to give up a few things that I really like and that makes me feel good, but I'm going to do it because I want my neighbors to know about Jesus. That's what it means to join God in mission. Dying to self. This, this hit me um, a few years ago. And maybe this will be a good practical example for you. We at our church several years ago, we did a renovation of our fellowship hall. By the way, y'all have a wonderful fellowship hall. And we renovated ours and, you know, put new, we had carpet on the sides and put new carpet there and, you know, made the tiles in the, in the ceiling look really nice and just, just made it look really good. Well, the next summer, we had an opportunity to partner with the food bank in our area to offer what's called a feeding program, which allows children in our neighborhood to come and they can eat lunch for free. And, and they just need a kind of a place to host it. And so we said, hey, we'll host it. And we thought this would be a great way to minister to children in our neighborhood, minister to their families. And so we started hosting this, this lunch program. And they would come in a couple days a week throughout the summer and they would eat lunch and they'd, we'd have a little activity for them and just, just try to minister to them. Well, once, one week that I was there, we had about 25 kids who were eating lunch. And 25 kids is not a lot, but... You put 25 kids in a fellowship hall like, like y'all have, 25 kids who maybe aren't the most well-behaved kids in the world, it can get pretty chaotic pretty quickly. Don't you agree? Uh, especially if there's not a real organized plan for them. <laughs> 
And, and, they, and they had some kind of ball and they were bouncing that ball and they were throwing it up on the ceilings and they were hitting the sides. And there was a part of me that immediately started to get incredibly annoyed. And I wanted to grab that ball and I wanted to look at those kids and say, do you understand what has just happened to our fellowship hall? It has been renovated. And we have paid a lot of money to have all these tiles replaced and we don't want you bouncing the ball and messing up these tiles. And then it hit me. Why did we renovate this fellowship hall? Was it just for us? Was it just for me to have the blessing of a nice fellowship hall? Because if that is the case, then I don't think I'm living out the words of Jesus here when he says deny self. Actually, I should be thankful that 25 kids who are probably coming from unchurched families are in our building, even if they're playing a little bit too rough. I should be thankful for that because that's what it means to be the church, to take the blessings of God and share them with the rest of the world, to not be like Victor Navorsky, who is trapped in a terminal. Too often we take the blessings of God and we trap them in here and we don't let anybody else have them, but instead to be people who share them and who serve our world because when our world sees our love and they're blessed by us, they'll want to learn about our Savior.